Alibaba is so there's so many ways that they bring revenue at the door. Yeah, but the and issue, they're profitable and they grow. The issue is that that Alibaba stock price has been doing nothing but zane. <laughs> Going one direction. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Do you know what group, band, I don't know what you want to call it, I'm going to call it a, a musical group, I'm so glad existed? No idea. And, and not necessarily, maybe not at all, because of the music, but just because of the name. One Direction. One Direction allows me to tell dad jokes I could not tell otherwise. Like, I'll say stuff like, man, that's so zane of you. And then it causes some conversation because they're like, what? And I go, you just have One Direction with that joke. Or don't, 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 don't give me <laughs> Don't give me that. I'm just, uh, I'm real happy. Sometimes the, the names of their songs also are really helpful. I'd be like, that's the story of my life. Just like Harry Styles. That's what's on my mind these days. I don't know what's on your mind these days. I doubt you know. The, do you know the uh, Jack Harlow lyric where he's like, we got five white guys pull up, but we ain't in seek. It's oh, it's funny. Um, See? Makes me laugh every time. One Direction, huh? That's how you're starting the podcast? I mean, woo. It's what's on my mind. Mostly because going back, the story of my life, I just got... Seems like you know a lot more about One Direction than I do. Yeah. Did I or did I not go down a like midnight dark hole of doom about One Direction? Maybe. We'll never remember know. when you fell asleep with like it, some boring nerd investing book uh, podcast in your earbuds and then you were having dreams about investing <laughs> stuff. I feel like <laughs> I do. Maybe that. you just fell asleep last night with some One Direction music <laughs> hopping very it very well could be, but it's it's top of mind today. You doing well awesome. today? Yeah, man, I'm good. So here's the here's a scoop. We're gonna do some rapid fire today, guys. We have listener mail that we'll do at the end of the show. I think we're gonna cover a lot of ground today, Diggles. And it feels like we need to cover a lot of ground because last week the market hit all time highs. You, I hate predictions. I hate predictions more than anyone else in the world, and I hate forecasts as much as I hate predictions because they're effectively the same thing. You predicted this when we when we went all time highs and then we we came back down, pulled into a trough. You were like, I think we're going to get one more head fake before it comes back to more read um, reasonable valuations. You absolutely nailed this one. True story. Yeah, we had all time highs. S&P to the five zero zero finally got there. I think we had the the Dow had already hit. I don't know about the Nasdaq. I'm not sure if the Nasdaq's there yet, but the S&P five zero zero is what we were. We were talking about before so when we talk about the market that's what we're saying oh my goodness what a ride though like if you think about this ride going back to let's go back to end of 2019 end of 2019 was kind of like things are kind of pricey right that was like the end of 2019 things yeah. are kind of pricey then the first month and a half of 2020 up until february 19th i remember this day it was just like this silly dilly Stuff like the market was just going up and up, and I was like, "What? Like this is out of control. What's happening right here?" February nineteenth hits, the COVID 
overseas, what's going to happen, started going down. And so there was some, you know, tumultuousness. Then it just slid down by a third, right? Then you have the catapult into 2020 and a 2020. We're definitely expensive. I'm going to touch on this a little bit later. Yeah. Definitely expensive. Then 2021 was like, psh, were we? <laughs> were we? Because I'm about to catapult you up further. Anyway, 2022 yeah. hit, 2023. It's just like, it's quite a ride. It's been quite a ride. I mean, you know what? I There's always like the index and chill frame of reference or recommendation. And you and I don't subscribe to that. We both outperform the market, which is incredibly hard to do, but we have systems to do it. But man, sometimes I'm just not sure it's worth the headache. You, the, the four or five years you just described now, they're just anxiety ridden for me <laughs> with, with yeah, like, well. oh, this is overvalued. That's overvalued. How am I rotating into something that's cheap? Now, I made money. You made money. Like, like that's the thing. You look back five or ten years later, and you're always like, I can't believe how much money I made. You know, like, but yeah, man, that doesn't mean it's easy. It does not mean it's easy, and it gets. I I enjoy it generally, but uh, sometimes it gets a little mentally exhausting. The end of last year, because of the horse race, right? That we were talking about. The end of last year was a little bit exhausting, and so I haven't yet. You know, I enjoy checking accounts on a more frequent basis than is advised. I like, I just sure. like the day to day. I don't necessarily check it every day, but I like the day to day. I have not checked my, my account, my accounts this year so far, because la the end of last year was a little bit exhausting. I needed to just like step away for a hot minute. I did get a text from my wife this week. That was, I love Broadcom exclamation point. So something is going on. I don't know exactly <laughs> what it is. But something is going on. I wanted to text back, not knowing what's going on. I wanted to text back, you do now, but you just <laughs> never. <laughs> Give it six months. All yeah, right. Exactly. You never know. You never know. All right. Let Ooh. me kick us off with four rapid fire, like kind of random stats from the week about how crazy things are right now and unique. So S&P closes at record levels, yet only one sector is that made new highs today. So this is talking about Friday last week. Utilities. That sector is not utilities. Okay. It's technology. Technology and the Magnificent Seven, which we're talking about, is like still driving the whole boat, man. It's a runaway sector, a runaway few companies. It's so bizarre. This is where I'm anxiety ridden. It's like, how do I handle this? It, it, yeah. Do you know if it's still, is the Magnificent Seven still the thing? Pretty much. Because I, the thing, like what I, what I have, you know, seen this, this year is it seems like Apple is not so hot this year, but they're still the second largest, well, not still, I should say they are now the second largest company, I believe after Microsoft, Microsoft took that throne, I think. So they're, they're obviously still up there and influential. So speaking of Apple and Microsoft, uh, there's a really cool graph here that goes all the way back to 1990 and shows the market capitalization of those two companies versus the Nikkei 225, the Japanese index. Yep. <laughs> Man, in 1990, those two companies were nothing compared to the entire country of Japan. Now they are valued at $1.5 trillion more than the Japanese index. Yeah. We talked about this last week with, uh, or two weeks back, with different Magnificent Sevens companies being more valuable than like the UK or Japan. But to see, growth growth over time like this mm -hmm. i mean these were in say 
2007, 2008, this was like one fifteenth of the Japanese index. And since that time, just exponential growth. It's insane. Yeah. yeah. And the, the main point that you're raising is the insanity of the fact that two companies can be larger than a country, than a country stock market. And when, when you sent this over to me, I just went, wow, like it, it's mind blowing. It's so mind blowing. The math checks out, but it's mind blowing. The point that also ties into uh, to the story, right, that you were laying out that I think is really impressive is that a lot of times when you have these well-performing, great companies, they're somewhat newer. Like they've been around for 10, 15, 20 years, something like when I say new, I don't mean like last year because you have to build some time. It, it, this is off memory, so I might be a little bit wrong, but I believe Apple went public in 1980. Microsoft went public in 1986, I think, if my memory serves me correctly. And so to the point that you were raising, when you compare them to the Japanese stock market in 1990, like they were little baby, baby bumps, you know, starting yeah. to get starting to get their thing going. It's now 40 to 50 years after. And that is pretty phenomenal to be able to keep that momentum. Now, Apple had a huge trip up for about 15 years. <laughs> Apple just like the Steve Jobs firing. They thought they were a soda company. And so they hired someone from Pepsi. It was like a lot of weirdness. Maybe. Microsoft Apple. hasn't been straight up and to the right either. There's been some bumps in the roads. Like that's Microsoft had lost decade. Yeah. In the 2000s, it, they were lost. To me, it's just incredible that not only have those two companies become as dominant as they are, but they're both in the US. They're both on the West Coast. They're both largely computer hardware, software, etc. Like yeah, it, it's right. amazing to me. Imagine if one of those companies was not US based how differently the world indexes would look. Well, I think we know because one of those companies is not US-based and named Alibaba, and <laughs> we see you where it sits. Okay, this is my, we're doing four high-level stats to start. This leads into the third. So the MSCI China index, if you, if the performance of Chinese stocks, uh, man, the last six months plus, just horrific really the last two years just horrific but if you go back to 1992 from 1992 to today the msci china index just flipped negative so what you're telling me is 30 years 32 30, years okay give me a second yeah. apologies well, 31 yeah. probably but, but yes yeah so we always talk about and and i feel like financial commentators in the US are so spoiled and always being like, oh, look at your time horizon. Like if you do more than five years or 10 years, you're pretty much guaranteed a great and positive return. And I always go, oh, that's the US guys. And it's not guaranteed that it will last forever. But in China, you could have, and there, it's way more complicated than this. In the simplest example, you could have put 10,000 bucks in the index and done nothing with it. And if you exclude dividends and all the other stuff, like you'd obviously be better off. But just if you took your dividends out, you'd still have $10,000 today. You'd actually have slightly less than $10,000. Isn't that mind-boggling? Yeah. It is when you think about the like pull away from the stock market for a second and think about just China. And what would say if you said the last 30 years of China, you go, oh my goodness. Like that's when China became China as we know it today from an, as an economic superpower. The Chinese economy 
uh, is roughly 13 times larger than it was in 1992. The stock market, again, there's, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of how complex this is and why this might not be a great representation of all the economic activity that's happening in the Chinese stock market, but the stock market did nothing. The economy is 13 times larger. That seems impossible and it actually happened. Yeah. It's a picture of this. Let's imagine this is a company. So you're a company that makes $100 million in revenue. And someone says, great, we're going to give you a five, you go public, we're going to give you a $500 million valuation, right? So you have a $500 million market cap, you're a $100 million company, you're like, okay, cool. Let's start growing this thing. Let's start cranking. Your company becomes $1.3 billion in revenue. You're like, oh, we done, we done done the thing. Like me and you, we done done the thing. You start doing your little dance. You load up your E-Trade account. You're like, oh, we're $500 million market cap. Like nothing <laughs> mattered. <laughs> now that actually, let's talk about Alibaba with that. <laughs> okay. There's tons of stats. Basically, the world has gone crazy. And all people do on Twitter these days is argue about Alibaba, whether it's a good investment or a bad investment. I told y'all, this is not investment advice. This is a research recommendation. I told you if it went into the 60s, I was buying some more Alibaba. Went into the 60s, I bought some more. If you, uh, I also just talked about the five years of pain I've had. So I wouldn't advise anyone to follow me into that trade. Right now, you can look at the price to sales multiple of Campbell's Soup and Alibaba. And the only reason I bring that up is because typically, that's a valuation metric you might use to project what the future prospects of a company look like. And not surprisingly to anyone, Dougals, Campbell's Soup has a price to sales ratio of 1.4 and Alibaba has a price to sales ratio of 1.36. People are more excited about selling soup up in here than they are about one of the dominant players in the Asian market in a thousand different... Like, Alibaba is so... There's so many ways that they bring revenue at the door. Yeah, but the and issue, they're profitable and they grow. The issue is that that Alibaba stock price has been doing nothing but zane, <laughs> going one oh. direction. Oh, no, but it's true. The, Can you say nothing but Harry? Can you use any of the? I could say it's been styling. <laughs> the amount of regulatory risk and. I don't even know if it's necessarily regulatory risk, but let's just even call it broadly geopolitical risk. Geopolitical risk. That is sitting around China is massive. Like that stat, it's massive. When you look at the, the ratios to your point around sales, earnings, all that stuff, if you look at the fundamentals of Alibaba, it's wild. But you never, on the regulatory side, right, the regulatory side, you never know, like we talked about, if tomorrow they're like, actually, cloud computing can't make money. E-commerce is now a thing that like, the government's just going to siphon. Like, You just never know if that's going to happen. It would be really wild for that to happen. And then the geopolitical side is, you sent me something, I think it was last week, of who, what countries would side with China and what countries are more favorable toward the U.S. There's just like a lot of cloud that's sitting over top of that country right now. Oh, man. There, Here's the only thing I want to mention. It, you're entirely right. We've both been bit by the easiest path forward is to say China's uninvestable. And 
go live your life, right? We've both been bit by these challenges before. But you can't buy, whether it's a US company or a foreign company, you can't buy a company with these positive prospects that is this cheap unless there's some story about the world coming to an end. That yeah. could be ExxonMobil when oil prices are negative during COVID. It could be uh, Meta when Meta was in the 80s, less than two years ago, because Zuckerberg was addicted to spending money on the metaverse and he lost his way. Like there's always some dumpster fire story if you get a dumpster fire price. And what's happening with Alibaba is a lot of negative news over the last three years. And then they're caught up in a stock market that is going insane. <laughs> like just a stock yeah. market that's falling off a cliff. Yeah. And so I hear what you're saying. You're 100% right. Your no nothing investor, your average investor should not touch Alibaba with a million foot pole. But man, if you want the true deals, you have to deal with some of the baggage. That's the only way it becomes a true deal. The darlings, the Apples and the Microsofts that print money, you don't buy those as a deal. Not until the story changes. No, it's to your, your point around Microsoft's like trough era. If you go back 20 years, that was the time to buy Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And this maybe maybe it's not exactly 20, but when the story was they're they're missing mobile. They're no longer as innovative. The products they're coming out with are straight garbage with all their new windows, right? You've got developers, 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 like all this stuff where Microsoft and Steve Ballmer were effectively just a meme for yep. tech gone wild. Or you go back to when Apple in the late 90s was months away from bankruptcy. And ironically, an investment from Microsoft is one of the things that helped to save them when Steve Jobs came back. That was the time to pick it up. But it's the the greedy fearful type situation uh, is is right. It, but, but here's the thing, though. That, uh, that I think it was Warren Buffett, that Warren Buffett saying gets used so much about anything. It's yeah, like, it's, it's just garbage. It's, it's such like, a, it's such garbage. But you do have to, if you want these types of deals, the story's not going to be great. It's not going to be like, oh, Microsoft's doing wonderful. Everyone loves it. And it happens to have like a 0.8, like price to book value. You know, no, like that's that's never that's never the case. The Alibaba charts that are so fascinating is the stuff you're talking about um, in a slightly different way where they plot total earnings or free cash flow or all these things. And you see one chart go up and to the right and then they put stock price and that falls off a cliff negatively. I mean, those are the things. You can go back to the Amazon letter from Bezos where he says, our stock price got killed. We're down 90%. Here's all the positive things that are happening. And it's like, we grew revenue by this. We did this. And he just lays out like, I'm not in control of the stock price, but the fundamentals of the business are strong. And therefore, I'm super excited about the future. I feel like it's a moment like that for Alibaba. Uh, but who knows? It's coin flip. We'll see. Time will tell. I'm going to take a little break from the rapid fire, talk about this piece that was in Morningstar. It's 12 lessons that we learned from the stock market in 2023. Not going to go through all 12. I'm going to touch on four of them. These are in different ways. Some things that we've talked about on the show on and off. I think they're worth hitting on again and again. 
I'm going to start with what they deemed as lesson number three. Valuations cannot be used to time the markets. In many ways, it's what I was talking about like five minutes ago. So what this is saying is when we went into the year 2021, U.S. equity valuations, and we were talking about this back then, that when you look at the the Schiller cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio, A.E., I, A.E., I'm just naming random letters, A.E., the CAPE ratio, <laughs> I.E. is what I meant, the CAPE ratio was 34. And we, in one episode, we talked about like what that ratio is, where it came from, right? It was a 34. Historically, it's a 17. And to reiterate what we discussed then, so this is when you look at the earnings over a 10-year period, um, rolling earnings over that period, uh, and and what does that look like relative to uh, market caps? And so you're double what the historical average was at that point. We're like, ooh, Jeremy Grantham, who has now been labeled Permabear at that point, was like, this is the year. 2021 will be the crash of all crashes. Buckle up, buttercup. I believe He's that still was the exact. That, by the way, yeah, <laughs> yes, <He's> still... <laughs> he probably He's said still... that last week. He's still saying 2021 is going to be the mother of all crashes. Uh, so anyway, it didn't happen. So what this is saying is, when you look at valuation metrics like this, it's really saying that the long term prospects are not as positive as they would be if it was lower. But it doesn't tell you what's going to happen this year or even next year. Yeah, it's like a uh, the predictions are pretty solid over the next ten years, but over the next two or three. Doesn't it almost doesn't matter at all? Uh, this next one, lesson number four, it takes discipline to stay the course through periods of poor performance as all risk assets go through them. We, when we talked about the quant winter's tale, this is the same point, so don't need to belabor it. But no matter what factor you're looking at, whether that's momentum, quality, uh, value, small cap value, whatever it might be, you're going to go through through periods where it's not in favor or the organizations that are um that are within that that factor are not performing so you gotta like stick with it a reminder that in like 2000 hmm, let's see 2006 ish the talking point on wall street if you didn't know what to do with your money if you thought things were overpriced was to buy ge collect the four percent dividend and sit on your hands how well did that work out for people like point being the people right now that think Apple and Microsoft or whatever factor has performed tech momentum is going to continue to perform positively forever are going to go through some rough times. Yeah. It's just the nature of the beast. Lesson number five. I like this one mostly because it's the same thing that you talk about a lot of times, but the way that they phrased it, I love assets with poor performance have self healing mechanisms. What this is saying is that mean reversion is a thing. That, that is, that's actually what it's saying. But self-healing mechanisms, I just like, it's amazing. So what it's saying is that if you're an asset that you're having poor performance, but the asset is still strong, then that asset, that asset's price will be, will be reflected, right? Reflective of that, of that, uh, the strong fundamentals at some point, that's the self-healing point. If you're just continuing to kick out profits, you're continuing to kick out cash, the market will recognize that at some point when it comes back into favor. Yep. All right. The last one I want to hit on, lesson number eight, most returns were earned over short periods. I will never get over how awesome this is. And by awesome, I just mean like it. it's so unintuitive, I think naturally that you think this because 
for what you were saying before, there's the the stock market produces what nine, ten percent a year over long periods of time. And so what the human brain naturally does during that is it says, if you look at any given year, it's probably going to be about nine percent, you know, somewhere in the eight to eight to ten percent range. But it's almost never in that percentage. It goes up, it goes down, et cetera. And even more specifically, there are days or months that make the entire market sometimes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a full paragraph from this piece that I think captures it really well. For example, over the 97 year period from 1927 through 2023, the S&P 500 returned 10.3% annualized. If we were to return, or sorry, if we were to remove the returns of the highest returning 97 months, what would you guess was the return of all the remaining 10,067 months? I believe that most investors would be shocked to learn that the answer is virtually zero. The remaining 1,067 months provided an average annual return of just 0.01%. The best 97 months, just 8.3% of the months, provided an average annual return of 10.4%, more than 100% of the annualized return over the full period. It's the, the, ultimate, the ultimate paragraph that comes under the fact that timing the market's really hard. Because yep. how do you guess 97 of, of the, full, the full months, right, during this period of time? It's just, it's just wild. 97 months. And sometimes it's one day, right? You get one day where the market finds something about a certain stock and that stock goes up 20%. And that was it. And you're like, yep. the stock was up 20% for the year. <laughs> well, yeah, but if you weren't invested that one day, yep. nothing. It's a really good one. That happens all the time. And that's why you almost have to be invested. Uh, I mean, you can't. Said a different way, this is why time in the market's so hard because you are like waiting for the perfect time to get in and you miss that 20% jump. And there you, go. you just wasted your year. All right, let's get back to the quick hits. What you got? Loved it. That was good. Oh, you know, you and I are both uh, sneakerheads. These days, you can rent some Jordan 5s. I used to rock some Jordan 5s in like fourth grade. So mm. that was awesome. Oh, yeah. But this is how this, this tells you so much about the economy, about sneakerhead culture, about everything. You can rent some Jordan 5s for $20 a week, Dougals. So if you got a super hot date or something, you got to rock some fresh kicks. Here we go. <laughs> this is at Reno Center. I'm chuckling because I don't know what else to do. Give me a guess on if you decided to finance these bad boys instead of just buy them off the street, <laughs> the difference in price you might pay. I mean, if you bought them off the street, they're probably 200 bucks, 300 bucks. Yeah. Uh, I, I hear 375 is the going rate. Okay. Now, what about if you finance these things for 53 weeks at 20 bucks a? I mean, quick math is about a grand. <laughs> it's a grand. I hope. I I hope that no one actually finances these things. But the Renaissance culture is a whole different world. For here's what I the main question that sprung to mind was, man, like how do they how do you return them? Like how how dirty are you allowed to get the soles? Like how sweaty can the shoes get <laughs> before they're like, no, you keep those bad boys. <laughs> well, now you got to be careful because now sweaty means like awesome, cool. That's it's a so how cool can I get? I could see someone, I could see a real estate agent using this as a way to get 
a couple to pull the trigger on a house. Like, I don't know if we should buy. We've been renting. It's like going on, right? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me tell you a little story. Think about some Jordan 5s. You could buy a pair of Jordan 5s for like 400 bucks. If you rent those Jordan 5s, $20 a week, now extrapolate that, multiply that by the size of a house. There we go. There we oh, go. Oh, my gosh. That is, it is, it is what you said, though. It's a, it's a sign of the economic times and specifically of, of the sneaker culture right now. And I really, I don't want to make this a bigger thing than it is, but it's fascinating to me that someone would even think about it. Now, the additional information I'd like is how popular are these items? Is this one crazy owner at one crazy rent center that's like, I'm going to give this a shot? Or is this an actual thing? Yeah, that's that's the question right there. Like, can you can you extrapolate this to multi multiple renta centers, multiple pairs of shoes, or is it just one anecdote? I don't know, but it's a buckwalt anecdote. I, does it does it say if anyone's done this? No, it's simply like uh, basically gathering the info from the rent center display. <laughs> but I have homework for the weekend. All right, I'm gonna go check this out. <laughs> There was my other in in yeah. sorry in posting this though, the decision tree that you go through to post this is like okay if I post this, somebody knows I was at Renner Center. <laughs> somebody knows somebody I was, knows I was about... copping some Jordan Five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Someone knows there was a moment where I was like twenty bucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I just don't need my chip my trip to Chipotle this week. I could be rocking some Jordans. Like yeah. there we go. Exactly. And let's continue the quick hits with uh, who's the person who's become my Kathy Wood. Mikel Bridges reported this week <laughs> in the NBA trade cycles that the Brooklyn Nets rejected as many as four first round picks for Mikel last year. Teams were really hot on the trail. It still goes back to Chipotle, Dougals. This is why it's such a valuable asset, man. Mm. I'm thinking about switching my diet to eating Chipotle every day. So I can play basketball like Mikel. Oh, so it's a it's a causation, not correlation situation. It's definitely a causation, don't you think? It could be Chipotle every day. I think it could it could be. I don't know. <laughs> Do you know how long he's been doing this? Uh, that stat I I had a couple months ago. I think it was like a thousand plus days. No, it was ten years. That's is ten years. Ten, ten years. Now I'm gonna have to research it. So let's it's from say when he was a teenager. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Oh, of, oh, of course. <laughs> you, Mikel, great guy. Those are my quick hits for now until we dive into real estate and uh, politics. But let's get back to you. All right. You sent this over to me. So you may have taken a, a, a harder look at this, but I want to talk about it. Us versus them. Us versus them. This is a survey out to folks, asking them how they feel about the economy and comparing that to what their current, it seems like what their current economic status is, as well as the school that they went to. Can you fill in the details? Okay, we debated, to give the full backstory here, we debated um, sharing this because the the source looks like it came from people with political intent. That's the way I'm going to say it. But it also looks like the um, sample size is big enough to make conclusions on, and the 
survey methodology makes sense. So we're going to talk through it. This came from the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, which I think has a political tilt to it. They surveyed a bunch of people, and I'm trying to find that exact number, and then they grouped people into so-called elites and Ivy Leaguers. And they compare that to the voting population. And the conclusions here are like jaw-droppingly stark. So here's what we're going to do. We we let you guys behind the curtain sometimes. And sometimes this show is a couple of friends talking about um, investing at a pub, effectively. And we let you behind the curtain. That's what we're going to do here. I still believe that this is... Um, basically done in a manner that's worth talking about, but I just want to have all those caveats out there. Is there anything else I should add to that, Diggles? No, but can I give one example of why that caveat is so important? Yes, please. Okay. Because it's it's stats like this that make you go, oh, wait, what? I'm just reading from the like executive summary at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Somewhere between half and two-thirds favor banning things like SUVs, gas stoves, air conditioning, and non-essential air travel to protect the environment. It's hard for me to picture two-thirds of nearly any group that is not three people saying, yes, I think we should ban air conditioning. Mm -hmm. Except maybe if you do this in the dead of winter. Last weekend was <laughs> like negative five degrees. And air conditioning. <laughs> yeah. Who needs air conditioning? All right. So anyway, the, that's the, the survey methodology uh, is based on two separate surveys of a thousand members of the so-called elites. We're going to talk about that. This is done by Scott Rins Ram Munson on basically in September 2023. Okay. Their definition of elites has me floored, but it's another good discussion point. Elites are defined as those who have a postgraduate degree, a household income of more than a 50K and live in a zip code with more than 10,000 people per square mile. So it basically says a dense area, decent household income, and a postgraduate degree. It's an interesting definition of elites, and that's where I wonder if some of the way they picked that tilts the survey results. But let's actually talk about some of these survey results, which I think is the reason that it piqued my interest, because I just, these are, the contrast is here, the contrasts here are so stark, and it's the reason they called this survey us versus them or them versus the U.S. or whatever they called it, because it just seems like two completely different worlds. Yep. Are your personal finances getting better or worse these days? They say all voters, it's effectively a 50-50 split with half the people saying better, half the people saying the same. And uh, sorry, uh, let me say that a different way. 40% said worse. 40% said the same or not sure, and 20% said better when you look at all the voting population. Yep. Yep. If you look at the so called elites, 74% said better, 16% said the same. And if you look at Ivy League graduates, which there's a tilt on this, and it's Ivy League plus a few other schools like the University of Chicago, Duke, and a, a few others, 88% um, said better. So you have 20% of the population saying my personal finances are getting better. And then the so-called elite category with a stark difference, basically saying at least 80% of those folks think their personal finances are getting better. 
in addition to the caveats he gave before, it would be really interesting to see what the correlations are to other stuff. Like, for example, if you if you have a postgraduate degree, make over $150,000 a year and live in a high population density area, what's the what's the likelihood that you are going to have a decent percent of your net worth in the stock market versus those that don't? Right. There's right. like these correlations that are really interesting. And I think that's one of my main hesitations is I almost now want the raw data to be able to filter some of these things in. Because if you ask the right question in the right way, you can get the correlation causation stuff gets pretty crazy. And I'm worried that that's happening here. Okay. Here's the question. Does the United States provide too much individual freedom, too much government control, or is the balance just right? Your voting population says that 16% say too much freedom. Your elites, 47% say too much freedom. And your Ivy League graduates, 55% say too much freedom. Very different. <laughs> I, I just go, is this believable? I mean, it's very yeah. different. It's rare to see graphs that are this starkly different. The, okay, this one has me floored and then we'll move on and we can do more research behind the scenes about, I'm sure this survey will create a a firestorm uh this next week and people will debunk it or whatever but um to fight climate change would you favor or oppose strict rationing of gas meat and electricity your voting population 28 percent says they would favor those things your elite population 77 percent says they would favor those things and your ivy league population effectively 90 percent say they would favor those things i hang out with some ivy league grads i'm gonna ask him this exact question i mean it just seems tough to believe yeah when when the quote-unquote ivy league grad you're standing you're standing outside their house waiting to ask them these questions they <laughs> hop out of their suburban to walk into their home to flip on their <laughs> air conditioning to get ready they're for the larger barbecue. than average home yeah, yeah to get ready for the barbecue they're doing Later on, like, yeah, yeah, just rational, ra rational that stuff. Right. There's, it seems unbelievable. It, it seems it, unbelievable. One other thing I'm going to throw out, this is not actually a graph. I just, the terminology that's used in here, I, I'm going to say I enjoy for the sake of humor. I enjoy. So the next chart, the title of it is favorable opinion of the members of the talking professions. I just want at some point in my life to be like, wait, you work in one of those talking professions? which they label as lawyers, lobbyists, union leaders, or journalists. <laughs> I might be on punk, but this, this graph is amazing. So lawyers, <laughs> I hang out with a lot of lawyers. My wife is a lawyer. <laughs> Voting population, favorable impression of a lawyer, 49%. Elites, 78%. And Ivy Leaguers, 91%. The only people that like <laughs> lawyers in this country are elites. <laughs> It's amazing. This whole thing is amazing. We'll it's put amazing. it on the Substack. Yeah. We will keep you up to date with uh, the critiques that I'm sure will come out of this. But <laughs> it, it just felt too good to not like. Yeah, too good to not talk about. All right, let's let's wrap the uh, the quick hits, and then do listener mail. Yeah, one more quick hit. I've been talking about commercial real estate for years. We're efforting a guest. I don't know if it's going to work, but to talk specifically about real estate. Uh, 1740 Broadway in Manhattan sold for $600 million in 
2014. And this week, Blackstone handed the keys back to the bank. Their outstanding loan on the property was about $300 million, And the bank put the property on the market for $150 million. I don't have $150 million sitting around, but if I did, man, it, and, and had a 10-year runway yeah. to operate this thing, yep, ooh, yep. I'd be tempted. What, but I'm waiting for the uh, mountain resort real estate to be 25% of current value so I can scoop some of that up. Like, <laughs> this is amazing. Your $150 million mountain resort. I'm <laughs> loving it. <laughs> okay. Listener mail time? Do it. Hit the jingle. They fight. Thank you, John. You sent in two pieces. Dos de los of the listener mail. We're going to hit on both of them. One of them is how passive assets have now overtaken active assets across asset classes. Here's the important part of this. So it's been a hot minute since passive stock indices have overtaken active stock indices. And so the difference between those two is passive if you say SPY, for example where SPY is the S&P 500, it follows the S&P 500. There's no like thought that has to go into that. People have have different ETFs that will do that. They'll index against something else. Active is when you have a strategy that's behind what you're doing. And so you will buy and sell assets depending on that strategy. There's nothing else that it's, it's inherently tracking. Okay, so that's the stock market indices. And it's been a minute and Vanguard is a big reason for this as others are, where people have been buying passive indices for quite some time. And those have overtaken active previously. What's happened now is that when you look at total assets between passive and active, so that includes bonds, right? It it includes all asset classes. Now, when you look at that, passive is overtaken. So the question is just like, has the tide fully shifted? Will active come back into favor across different asset classes? We shall see. Only time will tell. Thank you, John. Anything you want to say there? No? No, I'm excited to get to number two. All right, number two, emergency savings accounts and emergency savings accounts specifically with a matching provision from employers. This is something that came out in the SECURE Act that came out a couple years ago. I think I can't remember exactly when it was, but the SECURE Act that came out from the government, it has a provision for this, but it was unclear exactly what's covered, how, except a lot of things that the government puts out, they'll put something out there and then organizations are like, I don't know exactly what it means, so I don't want to violate it. So they came out with a little bit of clarity, but specifically the clarity they came out with was was a how to prevent abuse from employees. So it didn't fully clarify, but that's what it is. But in short, here's what you can do with these emergency savings accounts. So as an employee, you an employee that makes less than $155,000 a year, you can put in up to $2,500 into an emergency savings account. And it acts kind of like a Roth IRA in that the dollars that you put in would be after taxes, but the dollars that you pull out would not be taxed. And that money that's in there, it can gain interest. You can have you can have a little bit of investment. I don't know what the, the options for that, but you can have that in there. And then your employer can match up to the rate they would they would be able to match for a retirement account. So the point is to be able to get folks that when your car breaks down, when you might have like a little medical situation, when you just need that extra cash, you can get this emergency savings account 
with an employer match, which is pretty awesome, especially when we see credit card rates where they are. People can't come up with $400 on average, right, for stuff. This is a big deal. I like the idea. I think my take is going to surprise you here. Um, the first thing I'm unclear on, and I probably just missed it, is they're saying that my employer can match. The article also alludes to the fact that basically no employers are doing this. Mm -hmm. um, but they are also saying I have a contribution cap of $2,500. So to maximize my employer match, I put $2,500 in one month, take it out the next month, put $2,500 in the next month. Like, it, can you play yeah. that game here? So this is where I don't know what the what the the government exactly came out with recently, but that's the abuse point. So like the whatever clarity they came out with recently was how to be anti people abusing it, which mm -hmm. is ex like exactly what you're going down. I don't know what they what that provision was or whatever it might be, but that that was the purpose there, because the point is for people to have emergency savings and not to just game the matching situation. Yeah, I mean so. It just seems like a headache. I lo I like the idea behind this because we know that a significant portion of Americans would have a tough time covering an expense of $2,000. That study has been widely qu quoted for 20 years, and it's probably why the contribution cap is $2,500 yep. because of how common that talking point is. With all the regulation and time spent crafting and revising this, I bet they spent millions, if not tens or hundreds of millions. They probably should just give everyone two hundred. Maybe, yeah, two thousand. You just set up, or, you set up, set up like a a federal credit line. I right mean, there. something like with no interest. Some of the really research rich states, like Wyoming, have, you know, they have low taxes because they don't need them because the there's minerals available and meb favor uh talks about this idea where if you have if you're rich in resources you should have a birth dividend where you give someone like ten thousand bucks when they're born and it's invested in a low-cost etf in the u.s stock market and then the money vests for them when they turn 21 and all of a sudden you have tons of free money that you didn't really know what it just seems like there's a better way to accomplish the same task. Oh, I'm the same absolutely idea. sure that there is. Conceptually, cool, cool. In practice, yeah, I, I don't know. And I, I, to your point around, it doesn't seem like employers are participating. From the employer standpoint, I'm sure they're just like, there's some kind of a gimmick that's going to be run or a catch that's it's here. I don't know exactly how to quantify it for returns in my business, although like conceptually kind of can. Uh, but it's uh, it's something that needs to be figured out, generally speaking, because there are there are so many cases where someone can't be. I'm going to take this from the business standpoint, not sure. from the societal standpoint. Someone can't be productive at work or someone can't get to work. Right. So absenteeism goes up. So there's a lot of money that employers are losing or spending because of like $100 or $200 or $300 that someone didn't have at a moment mm -hmm. in time. And so if they could just get through that, then it'd be, you definitely get the ROI as an employer. But the structure of it being exactly like this is like, it's kind of a tough one. But what our government does to our employers is a little insane. I mean, 
your average HR person now is dealing with talking about 401ks, the difference between Roth and traditional they're, then they're worrying about HSAs and the flex spendings accounts. And then they're going to worry about the emergency savings. Like it's just too much. Yeah. They're like financial um, advisors. Yep. And we know not. that countries like Australia uh, make default contributions to retirement. I believe it starts at 3% of salary and it's the default stance. You have to opt out of it rather than opt into it. And their retirement balances are significantly better than the US because of that. The right thing to do, you're right, from an employer perspective is like say, hey, by design, we take 1% of your funds and put it in emergency savings and 5% in retirement and all those things. But man, then the paycheck, that first paycheck your employer gets when they think they're making 100K and they see what actually hits their uh, checkbook or their bank account, it like, it's pretty stark. It, yeah. This is just really challenging. Yeah. Well, interesting concept though. Thank For you, sure. John. But thanks, John. Appreciate it. Guys, we would request that you share the show with a friend and uh, give us a review. If you get a chance, we love that you're hanging out with us. You can find all things on the show, including crazy survey results dude because i'm still bothered about those survey results i think <laughs> i think the way they cook the books on that is that population density piece so calling an elite someone that only has lives in a certain population density basically makes the elite a uh, city dweller and i think that tilts the results but uh, i'm working through it i mean it, it it could also it's like um what do you call it in back testing when you like over rotate toward like data fitting. I can't remember. They overfitted the data. Yeah, they overfitted. Yeah. Because yeah. they're like, ooh, okay, that doesn't do it. Let's add in population <laughs> density. Ooh, that didn't do it. So it can't just be Ivy League schools. What if we added in Duke? Not quite. <laughs> yeah. Northwestern. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Who, we added Northwestern. politics matches <laughs> yeah. that. And then, I mean, because if you do the post-grad degree, I understand the logic behind it. If you do the 150K, I understand the logic behind it. But again, someone living in Wyoming with a postgraduate degree, making tons of money, why are they not an elite? Like, they are, from my perspective, anyway. Uh, yeah. But I got distracted. All thanks for the show, skippydoogles.com, premium subscriptions to hear detailed breakdowns of stock picks and get the show early if you want at skippydoogles.supercast.com. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, guys.